0: Heavenly Father, I know many of us hear this passage and the the vision that you give to Stephen and we long to see that too. We believe in our hearts that Christ is truly seated at your right hand, that he has ascended and that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. We want to right now, Lord, through the proclamation of your word and by the Holy Spirit that dwells in us, we want to see you clearly. We want to see the glory that you have manifested in Christ, the great work that you've done in lives with sinners just like us, and for the past 2,000 years, Lord, redeeming people into communities just like this. I pray, Father, you would show us this morning the objective fact that Christ reigns, that He is seated upon the throne, that He is the Judge and the Savior. And for any soul that's here, Lord, that does not know Christ As Savior, I pray that you would this hour save them, that you would by your Holy Spirit make them alive as you've made us alive, and that you would bring them into your kingdom. For those of us who know Christ, Lord, I pray we'd be rightly encouraged because he is seated at your right hand and has power and authority over the heavens and the earth, and we belong to him, we can never, ever be lost. Not only that, Father, but we can, even in the midst of horrible persecution, As we will see with Stephen today, Father, we can trust our spirit into your hands and even pray for those who persecute us. We ask for those hearts, Father, that the testimony of the gospel might be proven and borne out in our day-to-day lives. We are so thankful for this testimony. We're so thankful for Stephen and the great work that you did through him and the fact that we can read the words of Dr. Luke and, and grow in our love for you as well. And so I pray that you would be glorified as your spirit moves amongst us right now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Hmm. You knew you we were going to get here, right? I mean, we had to get to the martyrdom. Um, it is a, a difficult passage to read, and it is a glorious passage to read. Um, if your heart is broken, it shouldn't be for Stephen. It should be for those who were throwing the stones upon him. Condemnation was upon them. Um, not the faithful witness. So because Acts is a narrative, an historical narrative, you'll hear me at the beginning of these sermons continue to keep you up to date as to where we are. Otherwise, you'll take a passage and there's a tendency to take it out of context and lose focus. So we're five years post-Pentecost. I think we remember that from last week. The, The church in Jerusalem has grown exponentially in the thousands, if not tens of thousands. And God is now, he's going to do what he had promised to do, Right, That he was going to send witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and how far? To the very ends of the earth. Right, So this is the next stage of that redemptive movement. And he's going to use Stephen, the this witness to Christ, this man that we love, his ministry, his life, and now his death to do just that, to have the gospel go out beyond the walls of Jerusalem. Um, we left off last week. Stephen's on trial before the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish high court. They accused him of speaking blasphemous words, remember? One against the temple, which was their place of worship. And they said, you also spoke blasphemous words against Moses and the law, in which case they were speaking, they said he was speaking against their way of life. And so Stephen goes all the way back to Abraham. He says, let me paint you a picture of what's really happening here. The entire history of Israel condemns what you've said about me. In other words, he says, you you condemn me for saying that the temple is not the place of worship, and yet he said, you've idolized the temple. You worship the temple and your system rather than you do the living God. And then he closed, as we saw last week, and he said, oh, every single deliver from from Moses to Joseph, you have rejected. Just as your forefathers did, you've done that to Christ. The patriarchs rejected Joseph. The Israelites rejected Moses. And he said, and you rejected the ultimate deliverer, the greater Moses, Jesus himself. And then he closes He closes his speech, his defense before the court. Um, He knows these are dangerous words, my beloved. He wants them to hear, as those heard at Pentecost when Peter preached, he wants them to hear, repent, and believe. But he also knows that if they do not, that his life is in great danger. Look at verse 51. He said, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. The latter part of this 52, they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And so Stephen turns the tables and he says, you're accusing me of blasphemy against the temple and the laws of Moses. And he says, I'm gonna tell you, you're murderers. You not only committed murder, but you murdered the righteous one. You murdered your Messiah. You murdered the Son of God. Resisting the Holy Spirit. Their response, we get in verse 54, we pick up the storyline today. Now when they heard these things, the Sanhedrin and all those that were around for the trial, when they heard these things, they were enraged. You you can't get a word that will magnify their anger greater than this. And they ground their teeth at him. They're furious because Stephen says, listen, you think you're children of Abraham. I'm telling you, you're children of wrath. You You do not belong to God. You may be children of Abraham biologically, but the true child of Abraham is a child by faith. He says, You do not believe in the real living God, and therefore you put Christ to death, and you're going to try to put me to death. So the question that I had in working with this passage is: How did Stephen respond to their rage? How did God respond to their gnashing of teeth, their teeth grinding in their anger? It's certainly, I, I think, for both God and Stephen, they responded in ways that we would not expect, right? So, if I'm the one that's standing on trial, I know how I would respond, and it wouldn't have been like Stephen. I'd have kept going right. I'd have picked up in First Kings chapter six with Solomon the Temple, and I'd have traced it all the way through into the Babylonian captivity, and said, so "That's what I would have done. My flesh would have done that." Stephen doesn't. He he speaks in a manner that reveals their, his desire for them to be saved. We might expect God, too, to intervene, would we not? I mean, this is this is his beloved witness, Stephen. We might expect God to intervene and not only save Stephen, but, but smite and judge the Sanhedrin on the spot. And And God does do that. He saves Stephen and he judges them, but not in the timing nor the manner that we would like. We want something instantaneous. God does something very differently. I'd like us this morning to look at the the murder. And Stephen was murdered for the proclamation of the gospel. I'd like to look at the murder of Stephen by men who hated the gospel. They truly did. They hated what he was saying. And as we look at the, the first recorded martyr in the history of the church, I want us to see the power of the gospel to do two things. One, enrage people. And you've experienced that if you have professed the gospel to the lost. And to save people. The power of the gospel to enrage and to save. And the reason we have this extreme response is because what the gospel says about Jesus. The gospel says that Jesus is both judge and savior. And therefore we should expect the extreme response by mankind when we hear these claims of Christ. The theme of the sermon is this. Jesus stands ready to save. That's the theme of the sermon. In the midst of Stephen being persecuted and put to death jesus stands right now this very moment ready to save i want to look at this passage by contemplating three things number one the implications of the gospel number two the hatred for the gospel and number three the transforming power of the gospel the implications of the gospel the hatred for the gospel and the transforming power of the gospel all right are you ready i gotta get a drink here number one the implications of the gospel Stephen, God's faithful witness standing before the Sanhedrin has finished what he had to say. They want to tear him limb from limb. They're they're seething, they're furious. And so God, being God, being the gracious loving God that he is, he does something extraordinary. He gives this is a real vision now. This is not just a dream, this is a real vision given by God to Stephen in order to do two things. One, to give Stephen a sense of peace in the midst of what he's about to go through because this was going to fuel Stephen's faith. But also, and I think we miss this, it's to bring great clarity to the gospel message in order for the response to be one of either judgment or salvation. And so God opens the heaven and he gives Stephen the chance to look into the majestic throne room of God. Look at verse 55. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. No doubt he was smiling. No doubt he was just exuberant in what God had revealed to him. And so, so God, out of his infinite love for his faithful witness, wants to show him his glory. They, he wants to show Stephen specifically his Savior because he's going to need to know that in the next few moments. But he doesn't do it simply to comfort Stephen. He does it to reveal the far-reaching implications of the gospel itself. That the gospel is no small matter. And it does, doesn't impact just a few people. First, Dr. Luke's look at this. Dr. Luke tells us what Stephen saw. He said, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. But then he does something interesting. He then quotes what Stephen said. I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And so Luke does a a really interesting linguistic technique here. He equates Jesus, the righteous one, they had murdered with the Son of Man. And, And that may not mean a lot to you unless you know Daniel chapter 7. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. In Daniel chapter 7, In fact, Jesus Jesus said something very similar. Five years prior, standing before the same body, he referenced Daniel chapter 7 too. Listen, this is from Luke 22. Jesus said, the Sanhedrin said to Christ, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. Listen to what Jesus said. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. The Son of Man. If you've read through your New Testament, Jesus, that's his favorite title for himself was Son of Man. He called that himself more. In fact, here in in the uh, book of Acts, the only time that someone uses that term Son of Man in the New Testament outside of Christ himself is right here. Every other time it's Christ using it of himself. The title Son of Man originated with the prophet Daniel while prophesying in 550 BC under the reign of Belshazzar the king of Babylon and Daniel very much like Stephen had received a vision from God and in it in Daniel's vision he sees a deliverer a messiah a savior of God's people who comes before God the Father Daniel calls him the ancient of days And in that exchange, the Ancient of Days, God the Father gives to the Messiah all power and all authority over the heavens and the earth. Listen to this. This is from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel in his vision, 555 years before Jesus, I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like what? Like a son of man. There's your title. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. You, You see what's happening here in Acts chapter 7? The vision that Daniel had 500 years prior in Daniel 7. The prophecy that Christ made in Luke chapter 22 before the Sanhedrin is being fulfilled and is fulfilled. In other words, he's revealing to us, oh, by the way, he is at my right hand. Through his death, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus Christ is seated upon the throne. At this point in time in the redemptive story, Jesus is in possession of all power and all glory and all honor on heaven and earth now and forever. And that hasn't changed. That hasn't changed. He has an everlasting dominion as Daniel prophesied, a dominion that will never end, a kingdom that cannot be overthrown. There'll be no ruler, no king, no power, nor nation that will overthrow Jesus Christ as a king and his kingdom. In other words, they're hearing clearly Again, that the one they crucified, the righteous one, is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But there's something really interesting here, and I'm sure you noticed it from the text. When Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man in Luke chapter 22, he says, when you see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Father. Stephen doesn't say that. Stephen says he saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, some scholars say it's just... It's linguistic variation. Um, it doesn't. There's no distinction between being seated and standing. Uh, but most believe that there is a reason why he saw Jesus standing and not remained seated. Most believe that it reveals something to us about the gospel itself. Two things specifically. One, that Jesus Christ is a judge, and Jesus Christ is a witness. He's a judge, and he's a witness. He's a judge against those who refuse to believe. And so those who are about to put Stephen to death for the proclamation of the gospel, he stands up, he rises up, ready to bring judgment upon them. And at the exact same time, Jesus stands as the Son of Man, possessing all power and all authority and all glory to redeem those, to be a witness, to advocate on those who do proclaim his name, those who have come to a saving grace. In fact, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus said this to his disciples. Listen. He said, I tell you, friends, do not fear those who kill the body. Certainly, Stephen was going to experience that in moments. He then said, everyone, Jesus said, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will also confess before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. In other words, Stephen vi- Stephen's vision presents the dual position of Jesus Christ seated upon his throne, either as judge or as Savior, depending upon your relationship to God by faith. Judge or Savior. For those who refuse to believe, for those who refuse to confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, Jesus stands right now as judge. Right now. And for those of you who have professed Christ, for those of you who said, I do believe, I do believe that He is God, He will stand as your witness, as your advocate on that great day of judgment and say, That one's mine. They know me. Paul made this clear, Romans eight thirty three. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect on that day? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is what? Interceding for us, advocating for us. He's your witness. He's your Savior, if you know him as Lord. In other words, this is a, this picture of Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of God, this vision is both terrifying and glorious at the same time. It's terrifying and it's glorious. Jesus Christ right now at this very moment possesses possesses that position. All authority, all power, all glory. And not just to judge the children of Israel, not just the Jews, but for all nations. Listen to Daniel seven fourteen again. The Son of Man was given dominion and glory and kingdom. Why? So that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. In other words, we're getting, remember, we're early in the book of Acts, but we're getting this glimpse of this global mission. It wasn't just about the Jews. It wasn't just about Israel. It was to go out to the ends of the earth, this gospel message of Christ and His reign. In other words, 2,000 years later, As we sit here in Silicon Valley, proclaiming Christ, many who do not know Christ, he is objectively seated upon the throne. He is the Son of Man. And every single man, woman, and child will have to give an account to their relationship with him. It's binary. Either you will know the Son of Man as Savior, or you will know the Son of Man as Judge. There's no other option And I know in a culture that hates binary distinctions so much that we can't even get gender straight, that we hate this thought. My beloved, there is no third option before God. There is no plan B. There is no other means of salvation. You either know Christ as your judge at this very moment, or you know Christ as your Savior at this very moment, because He is objectively upon the throne. And by the way, how we relate to Him doesn't change that. I know that we think that too, that we can adjust our reality by how we think and how we behave. Christ is seated upon the throne, judge and savior. So first we see, and I pray we'll contemplate this personally in a minute, that Stephen's vision, his vision, the radical binary implications of the gospel of Christ as judge or Christ as savior explains the extreme response, right? I mean, if you if you reject this, you'll hate this. If you reject this teaching that Christ is on the throne, you're gonna have the response actually by the Sanhedrin is the right response if they hate Christ. The right response is not, ah oh, it doesn't really matter, I don't care. That's a foolish response because it's one or the other. The question for us this morning, and I want you to ask this, and I'll I'll pray as we close the sermon today is where do you stand right now before the standing king where do you stand this moment before the standing king are you awaiting judgment or are you awaiting vindication are you standing before the standing king knowing that your sins are still yours that you have not been forgiven that you have not been made clean and therefore he will judge you justly or are you vindicated because you know christ you've repented and you believed and you follow him Your answer, my beloved, cannot be based on a baptism you exercised years ago. It cannot be based on the fact that you've been raised in the church or you go to church. It cannot be based upon the fact that you have the largest Bible of all your friends. The answer to your positional standing with God before this Savior judge is your life lived by faith. The life you live by faith is your answer to your positional standing before this holy God. And Dr. Luke, he provides us with two illustrations, two examples, one that hate and reject the gospel and and one that loves God and loves the gospel. The Sanhedrin considered by the Jews to be, I mean, they were the the men of faith, right? These were the leaders of their, their faith. They hated the gospel and as a result, they killed the messenger of the gospel. Not only the primary messenger Jesus, they're going to kill Stephen. And Stephen, a disciple of Jesus Christ, who had been transformed by the gospel itself, shows us evidence that he truly knew Christ by how he dies. So I'd like to look at those two, and as we talk through them, I want you to say, who do, who do I identify with more? Be really honest with yourself. Don't just say Stephen. We all want to identify with Stephen. Ask yourself, am I more like the Sanhedrin? Is that more my heart? Because the answer The answer is important, right? The answer is eternal. So let's look at point number two. A hatred for the gospel. Look at verse 57. A hatred for the gospel. But they, the Sanhedrin, they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. And then they cast him, Stephen, out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Only Stephen saw the vision. No one else did. But they understood the implications of what he said, right? That the Christ whom they murdered, if Stephen's what he saw was right, that he seated the right hand of God, and that phrase means ultimate power, right? Over the heavens and the earth, then they realized as murderers, they stood condemned before God. As children of Abraham, they were condemned before God because they rejected the Savior. Now, they could not receive this as truth. We we know Stephen already said that they had uncircumcised hearts and ears, so they were not willing to accept it. And if they could accept it, they had to conclude what? Stephen was lying. And if you lie in the first century in Jerusalem that you had a vision of God, well, that is blasphemy. And so they realized dialogue's done Witnesses are no longer needed. He's condemned himself. He was guilty in their eyes. And the guilt required punishment by stoning. In fact, so grievous do they see Stephen's statements about seeing this vision of the glory of God and and Christ being seated at his right hand. We're told that they cry out, so they're screaming and they're yelling and they rush at him like wild beasts. Right, so much for the legal process. Dr. Luke tells us that they stopped up their ears. They literally, they covered their ears because they believed that if Stephen was was blaspheming God and they heard it, that God might punish them too. So they can't listen to it. They don't want to be caught up in his blasphemy. And so they revert to what they know best. They go to the law. They go to the law, even though it's unjust in what they're going to do. They go to it anyway, and they go to the penalty of blasphemy. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 14. Listen, take the blasphemer outside the camp. All those who heard him, that would be the witnesses, are to lay their hands on his head, and the entire assembly is to stone him. Now look at verse 58. It's almost a direct quote. They cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. They had to lay down their garments because they were the ones going to be casting the stones, fulfilling Leviticus 24:14. Now, most of us, when we hear the word stoning, at least I did for a long time early in my faith, you think of this angry mob getting a bunch of rocks, small rocks, big rocks, and they just pelt the person until the person dies. And And, and that may have... Then what happened here? Some commentators think it was a mob action i don 't think so, because this was a legal process and a legal punishment, and he was found guilty. The, the punishment from Leviticus 24 on stoning was um, it was systematic and it was gruesome. The victim was usually, usually stripped of their clothes, and they were pushed over a cliff anywhere from ten to fifteen feet high, and then the witnesses would take boulders as large as they could manage. First, they would take the the one who was going to be executed and they'd turn him over on their chest so they could receive the full blow. And then the witnesses would roll boulders as big as they could handle over the edge and strike the the person that was being executed. All the witnesses would go first and then the assembly would go until death was accomplished. Uh, And I think that's what happened here with Stephen. Now, Luke's rendering, this is fascinating Luke's rendering of the murder of Stephen is filled with judgment language, but it's not judgment towards Stephen. It's judgment of those killing him. The language is used, I truly believe this, to reveal how those supposedly what? They were supposedly exercising justice against Stephen in the name of God because he had supposedly blasphemed against God, and yet the language that that Dr. Luke uses here reveals that it was in fact God who was judging them. They were judging Stephen, God's faithful witness, and God in the process is judging them. Let me show you a few examples. Look at verse 54. Luke tells us how the Sanhedrin heard these things and they were enraged. The Greek literally means they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. Why were they cut to the heart? Why didn't they hear sins that Stephen had brought before them why didn't they repent, why didn't they put their faith in Christ, because Stephen was right in verse 51, they had uncircumcised hearts and ears, they were not God's children they rejected God, they did not believe and so instead of hearing the gospel and repenting, their hearts were cut they were filled with rage verse 54 again they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him, they gnashed their teeth, now you hear that and you go oh wow now, I know that phrase. I know that phrase. Christ used that phrase. He used that phrase in talking about eternal judgment and damnation. Luke chapter 13, when he was talking, remember, he's talking about how the door is narrow that leads unto life. Listen to what he says to those who refuse to believe. Luke thirteen twenty seven. he said, Depart from me, this is Jesus now, speaking as judge, depart from me, all you workers of evil. Depart where? Depart into that place where there will be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. That place when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself are what? You are cast out. You're cast out. In other words, the, the teeth gnashing that they were experiencing was a precursor, a foreshadowing of the teeth gnashing that they would experience for all eternity outside the city of God. Luke tells us that they cast Stephen outside of the city and they stoned him when in fact they were the ones casting themselves out of the city, casting themselves out of the presence of God and his favor and his goodness. You say, well, why would they do that? Well, they didn't want to receive the gospel. If you're going to put the messenger of the gospel to death, you're rejecting the gospel itself. And the only hope they had and the only hope any of us have of coming into the city of God and enjoying the presence of God is salvation by grace through faith in Christ. It is the gospel. You cannot reject the gospel and have any hope, any expectation of coming into God's presence. And so apart from them turning to Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, they would be cast out of the city and they would do the very same thing those in Revelation chapter six would do. They would cry out to be stoned. They would be cast out of the city And they themselves would want to be stoned. Revelation 6, on the day that Jesus returns, listen to this, they will cry out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of God. In other words, all this judgment language is is couched in bitter irony for those who refuse to believe that Jesus is the Christ they were bringing judgment upon themselves. The gnashing of the teeth. The being cast out into the outer darkness. The desire for the rocks to fall upon them. It's a horrific picture, my beloved. They remained in the rebellion. They refused the good news. They remained stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. They didn't have to, right? Stephen wasn't like that anymore. Thousands in the church in Jerusalem were not like that anymore. They had turned. They believed that Jesus Christ was in fact the Messiah. They believed that he lived that perfect life, that he died a sinner's death, that he was buried, that he rose. They believed that he is seated upon the throne of heaven. They could have believed that. They could have heard the message of the gospel, and they could believe that Jesus was standing not to judge them, but standing to receive them, standing to forgive them, standing to confess their names before God and the angels too, standing for all who repent and believe and saying to the angels and to God, this one, listen, this one, this sinner, once destined for the outer darkness, once destined for that place where there's only the weeping and gnashing of teeth, they would hear Christ say, this one now belongs to me. This one is no longer a child of wrath. They've seen the depth of their sin. They've seen the holiness of my father. They've seen, the, they've seen the payment that I have made upon the cross. They have put their trust and their faith in me and now they're mine. They would know Jesus not as judge, but as savior, as the savior. No longer condemned, but a brother or a sister, a friend in the kingdom. My beloved, this is such a severe warning. I hope you hear it as such. For all your family and all your friends and all your coworkers and all your neighbors who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, their end is outer darkness. It is the weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. It is a severe warning because it is a severe truth. It is an eternal truth. I believe it's a severe warning for us as well. My beloved, how how often... We hear this and we think of it in in terms of salvation. But how often are we like the Sanhedrin? How often do we judge one another unjustly in our own hearts? How often do we elevate ourselves to be seated upon our own high court and then we look around and we condemn all those around us? Assuming the position of judge. You do not have that position. That's not given to you. You have a master and you have a king. It is Christ. How often do we in our own hearts make ourselves judges over our own brothers and sisters in Christ? Right here in the body. Now, I'm not talking about legitimate Matthew 18 issues. Matthew 18 makes it very clear. When we have a brother or sister in willful and repentant sin, the church is supposed to act and adjudicate that sin. But that's the body of Christ. That's everybody together. That's not one individual. I'm not talking about judging people justly. I'm talking about judging people wrongly assuming things in the church it often takes the form of gossip and slander and we become critical of how someone dresses or what they're reading or how they use their free time or the entertainment they enjoy and certainly some of those things may be sinful and you would want to speak into their lives but you're not their judge they have a master and they have a king jesus was very clear when he said in matthew 7 do not judge or you too will be judged For in the same way you judge others, you too will be judged and with the measure you use it'll be measured to you. So every time we adjudicate someone wrongly in the church, we're saying to God, judge me the same way. Judge me with the same standard that I'm using upon them. Boy, your heart better be right and you better be clean. That's an awfully high standard. I don't think any of us make it. How often also, my beloved, do we stand in judgment of those outside the church? How often do we condemn as Christians, constant condemnation of those who do not live life in accordance with God's word, who do not live in accordance with Christ as savior. Didn't John say in John 3:18, "Whoever does not believe stands condemned already?" He did, because they do. And didn't the Apostle Paul say clearly in 1 Corinthians 5:13, "God will judge those outside the church?" He did because God will. My beloved, if apart from faith in Jesus Christ, those outside the church are already condemned, and if we know that God will judge them unless they come into a right standing with the standing king, then I do believe our response should not be one of condemnation, but compassion and proclamation. Should we not be looking upon all those who do not know Christ with great compassion in our hearts, Should we not long for them to know Christ that they too might not have him as a judge but a savior? And therefore, shouldn't we open our mouths and tell them that when they come before him on that day, they do not have to be condemned and cast out into the outer darkness? We, I've heard so much, especially this past year in evangelical churches of churches condemning the world. That's obvious. They stand condemned. What hope do we bring them? What hope do we offer them? in Christ. I think we should be bringing the gospel of grace to those outside the church so they can be saved instead of judged. Don't you? I do. So the Christians in your life that you spend a lot of time judging, stop. Those outside of the church that you spend a lot of time judging, that coworker that drives you crazy, you have him or her or multiple the next-door neighbor that waves their rainbow flag proudly, your unsaved family member that makes Thanksgiving and Christmas really hard. My beloved, as Christ was and is with you, you're not that easy, you know that. (laughs) You're not that easy. But as Christ was and is with you, we can, in Christ, show great mercy and great compassion to those who are difficult in our lives with the gospel. That's how Christ loves us showing so much mercy and so much compassion and praying for them that God would redeem them. We don't, We don't. oh, my beloved, we don't want to become a canceled church, right? The, the church, the culture cancels everybody. We don't want to be a canceled church. We want to be a church that loves and proclaims the gospel that we might see people brought in, not cast out. And my beloved, the truth is you know better. If they stand condemned then their end is the outer darkness. That should give you chills. If they die apart from Christ, then weeping and gnashing of teeth, that grinding of pain and hatred forever and ever will be their end. If that's true and you love the Lord, then that should move you to be compassionate in the proclaiming of the gospel. All right, number one, we've seen the implications of the gospel. Jesus stands as judge or Savior, number two, that a heart that remains uncircumcised, that hates the gospel, will reap that for all eternity. So I, can, I, can I give you one more point? Can I have you one more? Are you still with me? <laughs> okay, one more point. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. <sighs> How do you know you're not like the Sanhedrin? How do you know? Say, well, I'm in church. That's a bad answer. How do you know your heart has truly been changed by Jesus Christ? Point number three, the right credentials that you might know that you're not missing Christ and missing the gospel and in turn find out on that day that Christ is your judge, not your savior. Point number three, the transforming power of the gospel. Look at verse 59. This ends so beautifully. They're stoning Stephen, verse 59. He called out, as they stoned him, he calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of his execution. So Dr. Luke, he sneaks Saul in here. You got that? Saul was standing there watching the execution take place. He held the garments for those who were going to be throwing or rolling the stones. And then we're told here that he approves of Stephen's execution. We're going to get to Paul. We're going to talk about Paul a lot. But he wants an introduction here because he's going to tie in Paul's evil, unbelieving heart to what God does in transforming him in the future. So hold that thought. We'll get there in several weeks. His main focus, though, is on how Stephen dies. There's a laser focus on the manner in which Stephen takes his last breath. And it's just like his master. It's just like Jesus, almost word for word. In fact, you're reading this thinking, is this the gospel or am I in Acts? Because just like Jesus, what did Stephen do? He trusted implicitly God with his spirit for all eternity. And number two, he did, I think, one of the hardest things to do is he sought forgiveness for those who were murdering him unjustly. You think you've been treated poorly. In other words, he... He died as only one filled with the Holy Spirit could die. This is not the flesh. This is a man truly born again, truly loving Christ with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. Right before our Lord expired on the cross in Luke chapter 23, remember Jesus cried out with a loud voice. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And after having said this, he breathed his last. You know where he got that? That's a prayer of David. That's Psalm 31. We had a chance to read it today. Psalm 31 reveals, you say, what is the heart of faith? Psalm 31 is that passage. It is that teaching to show that you really know God, that your heart has been surrendered to God and therefore you belong to God. David had it, Jesus had it, Stephen had it. The question is, do you have it? Do you have that heart that has truly been made new, circumcised for the living God? Listen to David in Psalm 31, and this, ask yourself, is this my disposition before the Lord? David says, in you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Then he says, be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. For your name's sake, lead me and guide me, for you are my refuge. And then we get to verse 5 of Psalm 31, into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. So Jesus knew from eternity past what Stephen was coming to know. It's the most important thing you can know about the Christian faith or about your faith. And you know what that is? It's that God is faithful. It's that God is faithful. Not your power not your will, not your sustainability, not the strength of your faith to make it to the end, but the faithfulness of God. The entire psalm, the cry of Jesus, the cry of Stephen, "Receive my spirit," was, "I trust you, God. I trust you with everything. My beloved, if you're going to trust God with your eternal spirit and your eternal position forever and ever, then can't you trust him with your job, and can't you trust him with your mortgage, and can't you trust him with your marriage, to your children? You must. Right, Those are lesser things. So certainly we would be able to trust Him with those things if we trust Him with our spirit. God's faithfulness to be our rock of refuge, our strong fortress, our deliverer, that we won't be put to shame even when we lack faith. Even when we lack faith, God is faithful. So what Jesus knew from eternity past, Stephen had come to know and believe in Christ, that God is faithful, and God faithfully saves his children. He faithfully saves you if you're in Christ. And I'm not just talking about that eternal day when you stand before the judgment seat. Christ will be your advocate, he will be your witness, and you will be saved. I'm talking about every moment of every day. Listen, Jesus Christ is standing right now to save you this day. To save you today, tomorrow, and until you come into his presence. He's standing right now to encourage you when you're downtrodden. He's standing right now to strengthen you when you're weak and to guide you when you're lost and to love you when you are what? When you are unlovable. And sometimes we're not all that lovable and Christ still loves us. Why? Because he is faithful. He's faithful. We break it off all the time. Every time you commit sin, you're turning away from God. Every time you commit sin, you're being unfaithful, but God is faithful. Remember, you're the one, he says, this one belongs to me by grace through faith. That happens, my beloved, when we take refuge in him. It happens when he is, Jesus Christ is, your rock and your fortress. For years, a dear brother of mine struggled with alcoholism. And he tried. He tried willpower. He tried AA. He tried hypnosis, self-help programs, recovery centers. He tried. All to no avail. And then one day, after hearing the gospel multiple times, he heard it anew. He repented of his sins. He was saved by God's grace through faith. He not only got saved, but you know what else? He got sober. Funny how that happens. He got sober by God. By God's grace, the Spirit still dwells within him. He's still in the Word. He's still in the prayer. He's still in the church, and he's still sober. But it's his sobriety is not the shock. We're so thankful for that. It's the means by which he became sober, which was God. God made him like that. God made him new. God is faithful to his children. On the cross, my beloved Jesus committed his spirit into the hands of the Father. Look at verse 59, though. Did you notice that as Stephen was being stoned, he committed his spirit into Jesus' hands? This is so sweet and so tender. He said in verse 59, the latter part, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Because Jesus now is the mediator. Jesus is the advocate. He's the witness, right? Now, this was not a prayer of desperation, Stephen doesn't go, oh, he's seated in the position of power. I'm going to go to him because he has the power to do something about this. Of course he knew that. This, my beloved, was a prayer of pure love. Pure love. Stephen knew Jesus. Of course he knew his power and position. He had a vision, right? but he also knew that prior to that. But he knew so much more about Jesus' love for him. He said, well, how? How did Stephen know such a thing? Well, he was born again. He had the Holy Spirit dwelling in him. And Stephen is going through the exact things that Christ went through to an infinitely greater degree. For him. For Stephen, the sinner, and for all who repent and believe. Remember, Jesus, also full of the Holy Spirit, was also accused of blasphemy. He was not stoned to death. He was crucified on a Roman cross. But unlike Stephen, now listen, my beloved, because I want your heart to soar for Jesus. Unlike Stephen, who was comforted in his moment of need, when God gave him a vision of his own glory and a vision of the Savior, Jesus Christ on the cross received no such comfort. In fact, he received the exact opposite. Although innocent, God treated him like the consummate blasphemer, denying him Denying his own beloved son access to the glory and the love and comfort of God the Father and Spirit that he's known for all eternity, and that's denied on the cross. And instead of a vision to bring him comfort, God laid upon him the iniquity, the sins of all of us, that by his wounds we might be healed, that we might be made new, and that we might be declared righteous too. Jesus, like Stephen, most of you know this, was cast out of the city for his execution. But unlike Stephen, by ascending the cross, Jesus was cast out into the real spiritual outer darkness. For that three hours of darkness upon the cross, Jesus received the eternal agony of the full wrath of God in his flesh. The real weeping and gnashing of teeth, our Lord bore, the full wrath of a thrice holy God that we deserved and he did all this so that a sinner like Stephen and a sinner like you and a sinner like me through repentance and faith could receive instead God's glory and God's love and God's mercy and be brought all the way in all the way into the eternal city Stephen knew whose hands he was committing his spirit he knew the goodness of the savior And said joyfully, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Do you have that same assurance? Do you know Christ like that? If today is your last day, can you say, Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, into thy hands I commit my spirit? Can you say that? My beloved, if you are conscious in your dying hours or minutes of life, you'll either be filled with comfort or with terror. Comfort or terror, and both of those are going to be true depending upon your relationship with God. You'll be filled with comfort if you've given your life, you've trusted in Christ as your Savior. You may, even in those moments, as your family weeps over you, you may be overwhelmed with a sense of joy because you know you're leaving this body, and to leave this body means to come into the presence of God. Be compassionate. Don't be too joyful in your death, knowing where you're going for those who are going to miss you you know that your advocate stands for you. You know that your advocate is standing there and is eager to bring you into the presence of the Father. So there'll be joy and there'll be comfort. But if you do not have the assurance of Jesus Christ, remember, it's binary. He's either judge or savior. He's seated upon the throne. If you do not have the assurance of Christ as your savior, then listen, terror is the only other option. Absolute, abject, eternal terror is the only other option. Now, you may have gone your whole life rejecting God's reality. You've created your own atheist webpage and told everybody about it. Maybe you said, you know, I don't have enough information to know about God, so I'm just going to claim agnosticism. Maybe, maybe you've worshipped other gods and served other idols and you've lived your life as you see fit. My beloved, when when death knocks at your door, agnosticism, atheism, and idolatry will bring you zero comfort. You'll know in that moment that there is no hope apart from a real Savior. A real fear, an eternal fear, will be all that you know as you commit your eternal spirit. In our heart of hearts, we know that we don't ultimately die, that everybody lives in one of two eternal states. And there will be no greater terror for any man or woman on their deathbed knowing that they're going to commit their eternal spirit into the hands of the eternal judge, not the eternal Savior. The first prayer of Stephen when he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, reveals clearly that his heart had been transformed by the gospel. He trusted God implicitly with his eternity. The second prayer reveals a transformed heart as well, I think even more practically. Look at verse 60 again. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That's a a euphemism for he died. Now Jesus prayed a very similar prayer. Right, He died like his master. Jesus said in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So we see the great parallels there, but you have to say, but but Stephen's not Christ. Stephen's not the son of God. He's not the son of the Most High. How could Stephen pray this prayer? My beloved, you got to ask that. How was it possible for a sinner, saved by grace, to pray in a moment of such grave injustice and grave suffering, to pray like Christ prayed? Can I tell you how? Jewish tradition held that The person being executed was called upon to confess their sins. They wanted them to confess their sins before they were killed so they would be in a right standing with God. Well, Stephen didn't do that in this moment because he had already confessed his sins before God. Stephen, at some point in time, prior to this, had already confessed his sins. He received forgiveness from God fully. He was made clean by the blood of Christ, and he was now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So he's right with God in the midst of his own execution. And so he's able, even as being, he's being stoned to death for crimes he did not commit, he's able to do the most extraordinary thing. And instead of seeking forgiveness for his own sins, which he had already done, he seeks forgiveness for the sins of his executioners. He asked them, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. You know what, that's a prayer. That's a prayer of pure grace He's saying, Father, what they're doing is so evil. It's so wrong. You gave me a vision. I testified to the vision and now they're killing me for it. But don't hold it against them. Forgive them as you have forgiven me. Show grace to them as you have shown grace to me. Like the woman who anointed Jesus' feet in Luke chapter seven, Stephen loved much. Why? Because he was forgiven much. Stephen loved radically because he had been radically forgiven. He had been forgiven of every sin, past, present, and future. And therefore, he was no longer bound to seek vengeance or demand justice. He was free. Oh, here's freedom for you. He was free to love radically and seek forgiveness for those that were the most unlovable in his life at that moment. For even those who were going to take his life unjustly. What a different world this would be. And what a different church we would be if we loved one another like this if we loved much, because we know we've been forgiven much in Christ. My beloved, if you are in Christ, you have, here's great news, you've been, you've received the same forgiveness, the same grace, and the same love that comes through the broken body and spilled blood of our Savior. And therefore, just like Stephen, you are supernaturally equipped to do the same, to love the most unlovable people in your life. Just like Stephen. You don't have to wait until you're being stoned to death. You don't have to wait until your final hours to seek the spiritual well-being of those that are around you, even your enemies. Stephen stands out as a true man of God, unlike the Sanhedrin, those with uncircumcised hearts. He trusted God implicitly, implicitly, because he believed God is faithful. Even with his own spirit and his own soul, His prayer reveals, my beloved, that his heart had been transformed by Christ because he loved radically. He loved those that he should have rightly hated. So as I close in prayer, I want you to examine your heart right now. And I'd like for you in this next minute to be brutally honest. Brutally honest with yourself. Is your heart more like the Sanhedrin resisting the Holy Spirit resisting the truth of God's word? Do you find your heart filled with more more with anger or frustration or bitterness towards God or God's things or God's people? Is your general disposition of your heart towards others one of judgment or grace? Just ask that. General disposition. Do you look and judge or do you look and see grace? If any of those are true, that I beseech you on behalf of Jesus Christ to repent immediately. Repent right now of those sins and seek Christ as your refuge. Come to him, come to the cross and receive the mercy and grace that flows through his blood. If that is you. If your heart trusts in the faithfulness of God like Stephen's heart and if you do love others, not perfectly, but you love others as Stephen loved even his enemies, then you should praise God For the transforming power of the gospel that's in your life. This was not your doing and it's not your flesh. It's the Holy Spirit working out on you. So you should be praising God and singing to God and thanking him for the great work that he started in you that he promised to what? Bring to completion when Christ comes again. Those are the only two places that you should leave here with today. Deep self-examination. Jesus stands. He's standing at this very moment ready to judge and ready to save. How is he standing for you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would be gracious with us right now and for anyone here who rightly identifies himself more with the Sanhedrin than they do with Stephen, that they would repent immediately. That they would believe that on that final day when they are brought into your presence that Christ will either be judge or savior. I pray Lord that you would reveal the depth of their sin and their animosity toward the gospel and that you would compel them even now to fall upon their knees and cry out for mercy because you are quick to give mercy. You are eager to grant grace. I pray Lord that for those of us who do know you that we would not only praise you for the transforming power of the gospel that you've done in our lives, but then we would look upon our mission field, we look upon those outside of this church truly believing that they stand condemned apart from Christ, and instead of judging them, instead of condemning them, we would pray for them, we would love them, and we would share the gospel with them. Father, give us a clear picture of the binary distinction of your son Jesus Christ Don't let us fall into that middle area, that gray area that does not exist. On that day when he comes again in glory, there will be crystal clarity. Show us that truth now, that we might not only be saved, but live holy lives until we see him. I ask that you would do that, Father, for my brothers and sisters. Do it for me. Do it for all your true churches throughout the world this morning. Bring great clarity to the gospel of Jesus Christ as he reigns over the heavens and the earth. In his name, amen.